Good morning, Veritas Church. Let me begin by saying how good it is to be with you. I've been praying for you. I've been anticipating uh, this season as we've uh, continued to move forward week by week, trusting that the Lord's directing us. And so at the outset of this season here, I just want to let you know how thankful I am uh, for the Lord's kindness and just his providential care in all things. And I'm looking forward to getting to know you. Uh, Right now, I know many of your faces, very few of your names. So if you come up to me and I give you that deer in the headlights look, shake your hand, just be gracious and remind me of what your name is. But I'm looking forward to just even like events today, spending time in the park, um, the other things that the elders have planned in the weeks and months to come uh, to continue to get to know you. I'm praying for you specifically that each of you would continue to look to Jesus Christ, who is our chief shepherd, and looking to him, uh, remembering that he is a faithful shepherd, that he is more than sufficient to care for his church in every season, and specifically a season like this for for all of his churches. Uh, And like you, I'm looking to him uh, to direct our steps and to guide our path, and knowing that he will be faithful to do that. And I think one of the best ways that he will guide and that he will direct us is if we will open his word together. And that's primarily how he will shape our affections, our loves, our wills, and ultimately the direction of his church. So as Pastor Greg read earlier, let's open our Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 4. The last couple of times that I've been here, spending some time in the book of Jonah I think it was back in October or November was the last time that we were in chapter 3, so we'll continue here this morning, closing out chapter 4. The Word of God was just read, but as it's now before us, let's remind ourselves. Let's pick up actually in verse 10 of the end of 3. When God saw what they, Nineveh, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, 
You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's look to the Lord and ask him for his help as we spend time in his word. Heavenly Father, you have taught us to seek you. You have called us to look to you and to cry out to you for help. And we do so this morning, for you are not only able to provide all that we need as your people, but that you've also shown yourself as one who is a heavenly father that looks upon your children and that you've told us that you actually delight to help us. So we would ask that you would help us this morning as we have your word open before us. And we pray that you would send your spirit to reveal Christ to our understanding, to enthrone Christ in all our affections, give Christ to direct our will and endear our hearts to him so that you might glorify Christ in our soul and conform us to his lovely likeness, which is your son. We ask in his name. Amen. Do you like asking questions? Are you the type of person who is inquisitive, who doesn't just take it at face value, but you begin to ask why or how or what or how is that so? Or maybe you're the type of person who likes to answer questions. You like to submit your proposal. You like to try and close the loop. You like to try to close the gap and say, I think this is what this means. If you think about it, asking and answering questions is a big part of what it means to be human. It's who we are. Teachers ask questions to assess knowledge of their students. Did they really read? Do they really know? Humble people ask questions in order that they might gain understanding and be better directed. If you think about it, even the way that we most often care for one another is by just asking very simple questions. How are you? How can I help? But what about when God is the one who asks questions? Is he looking for answers? Is he looking to close some gap in his own knowledge? Jonah chapter 4 is marked off by several important questions, questions that God puts before his prophet, Jonah. And as you really survey the scriptures, you discover that this is not unique to the, the book of Jonah. God often uses this tactic to interact with his created ones. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where are you? Or later in the book, chapter 4, he asks Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Surely God knew the answer to both of those questions. He puts questions to his servant Job when he tells Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And in each of these instances, what you find is that God is not looking to answer something that's, that's unknown to him. What God is doing is he's looking to draw something out from the person that stands before him. And so as we come to the final chapter of Jonah, we have a series of questions that God puts before Jonah, his prophet. They are questions that God most certainly knows the answer to, 
They are the sort of questions, though, that are asked and aimed with perfect precision and that God knows exactly what he's going after. The real heart of the issue that God is seeking to uncover is this. Who is it that deserves mercy? It's a question that God wants Jonah to recognize and to consider, and by the means of God's grace and his work among us, it's a question that's being asked here in this church today by his word. Who is it that actually deserves mercy? Have you ever thought about that question? Have you ever moved beyond the pat answer of what you know ought to be true? Well, it's my desire that that's exactly what we would consider this morning as we have the text of Jonah open here before us. Who is it that deserves mercy? Well, in order to answer that question, in order to work through these 11 verses, there's, there's really two sections we need to think about. We could break this section up into thinking about really considering first the displeasure of Jonah in regards to this and the response of God to Jonah's heart. We're brought front and center to this reality of Jonah's pleasure because as we read through this chapter, it is very clear that Jonah is angry. It's repeated twice in just 11 verses. He's not happy. And this anger then really becomes the platform by which God comes to him and seeks to question him. But before we get there, we have to ask why. Why is it that Jonah's angry? Well, if you've read the book, you have some idea. And the reason I read chapter uh, 3, verse 10, is to just remind us what has just happened here on the heels of God's encounter with Jonah. Jonah is angry, first of all, because of what he saw. What he saw was there in verse 11 of chapter 3. Jonah saw a city that was still standing. There was no plague that struck them down. There was no fire from heaven that came down to consume them. There was no horde of foreign armies on the next hill ready to invade and devour them. All that Jonah saw was the sound of a city and the, the response of a city calling out to God, fasting, and talking about their great need to turn from their evil ways. What Jonah saw really was the merciful hand of God extended to a people who were, had this great reputation for, for evil. And this displeased Jonah greatly. This enraged Jonah. Jonah was angry over what he saw. Wicked people deserve justice. And God's given out mercy. He was angry not only what he saw, but what he knew. And this brings us into chapter 4. If you look at the first three verses, it's put right before us so we would not miss it. Jonah is enraged over what he knew. And this right here really is the climax of the entire book as we are clued in as to the very reason for the entire conflict and the whole narrative of these four chapters. It had everything to do with what Jonah knew of God. This is why he rose to flee to Nineveh. He says, this is why I took a boat to go to Tarshish. This is why he reasoned it would be better to be thrown overboard and drown in the sea than go to Nineveh because of what he knew of God. And ironically, it's the same character of God that the very reason he was spared by this great fish 
and delivered to dry land. Jonah knew that the atrocities of Nineveh and he knew the character of God. His worst fears really became true before his eyes. God has mercy on wicked people. How did Jonah know this? He says right there in verse 2, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How did Jonah know this? Well, he knew it because it's almost a word-for-word repetition of Exodus 34. Jonah knew his scriptures. He knew Moses' encounter with the glory of God where God passed before him and God said, I'll, I'll speak my name. If you want the context, begin reading towards the end of Exodus 33 where Moses prays to God and says, show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then you come to the next chapter in chapter 34, and it's described for us. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Yes, Jonah knew something of God. He knew what Moses knew. He knew what Nehemiah knew. He knew what the psalmist knew. And he knew what every person taught in the scriptures knows to this day. God extends mercy to wicked people. God delights in steadfast love. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be introduced to God's judgment. But God introduced himself with a hand of mercy. He did not bring the disaster that they deserved. And do not forget that. He did not bring the disaster they deserved. You remember God's call to Jonah in chapter 1. He says that their wickedness had come up before them. The very reason he was sending Jonah to Nineveh was because of their great reputation for evil and violence. They deserve judgment. And yet God gives mercy. And this fact right here was scandalous to Jonah. It displeased him so much that he was angry, so angry, so despondent, so undone that he says, again, it would be better for me if I were dead than to see this mercy given to them. Now, you read that, you hear that, you know your own heart, you read the news feeds just like I do, And you begin to wonder, how is it that Jonah could be so disconnected? It's tempting to think, well, he must have just forgotten that he was a sinner. For a moment, he had a lapse that he didn't remember who he was. 
He forgot chapter one of his own story. I think it's more likely that Jonah knew very much who he was. But he reasoned, there are sinners. But then there are sinners. And you know what I mean. You know how this works. You know how in some way the sins of others typically look worse on them than they do on us. You know how the sins that you have never committed nor could ever even dream of committing somehow carry a greater weight when others commit them. They're sinners, but then there are sinners. Perhaps one of the better explanations for Jonah's attitude was given by Jesus and his telling of one of the really the most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son that was found in Luke chapter 15. And while this story, this parable, it is the favorite of so many people, the point is often misunderstood. As moving as it is to read of the heart of the father who extends to this prodigal son, the real thrust of that passage is not so much the rebellious son, but what we're told of the older self-righteous brother. Listen to Christ's words in Luke 15, verse 28, describing the older brother. He was angry. Sounds familiar. And refused to go in to this party that was being thrown for the younger. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. He was angry. Do you hear something of Jonah's response within the older brother's words? I knew this about you, God. They are the Assyrians. They oppose your name. They oppose the true and the living God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jonah could have well taken up the language of the psalmist in Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge of all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? You see, Jonah is enraged. He is angry enough to die because God extends mercy to the ungodly. Well, how does God respond to this? That's really the bulk of chapter 4 and what we're given here in this text. It's really from verse 4 on is God's response to Jonah. And if ever there was a case study in the slowness of God's anger, it would be right here. Instead of crushing Jonah, God deals with Jonah by asking him two questions. Two questions that are really the same question posed in different angles, in different light. It has to do with his anger. The first time he asked the question, you'll see this in verse 4, it's a question of righteousness. Is this righteous anger, Jonah? He asks him straight away, do you do well 
to be angry? Or is it right for you to be angry? Really, if you recognize this, this question is the signpost at at a fork in the road right here and how God is dealing with Jonah. Jonah, if you are right in your anger, then I'm wrong. And we take that fork. But if I am right, and if your anger is wrong, then I'm in the right in what I have done. Do you do well to be angry? There's silence. We're not told of a response. But if you've been reading this far in the book of Jonah, you know something of the great patience of God and his willingness to suffer long. You remember back in chapter 1 that when Jonah rose up to flee, that God actually pursued him. He came after him in mercy. God is not done with Jonah here. Even in the hardness of his heart, even in the smugness of his self-righteousness, God pursues. Because God asks another question, or he asks the same question from another way. He sets up this question, though, with an object lesson. He says, all right, we'll come back to this question. But first, God sets up an object lesson to become this platform to ask him again about his anger. And so Jonah heads east out of the city. He builds a shelter to sit in in the shade and just to watch and wait. He is done with Nineveh, and he's just going to watch and see what becomes of them. But God at this point, again, is not done with Jonah. Because the same God who sent the wind upon the sea back in chapter 1, who sent the waves that crashed into the boat, who sent the great fish to rescue Jonah from drowning, this God now appoints a plant, a worm, and a wind. Remember, all of this is just this object lesson to set up the second question again. First, he sends a plant to extend over him and to be shade, and ironically, to save him from his discomfort. There in verse 6. And then what do we read? Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, do you know that this is the first and the only time we read of Jonah being glad? Not when God rescued him from the great fish. Not when the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Not when the king of Nineveh humbled himself and called for a fast and called for his city to seek the Lord. But when his discomfort was soothed by the shade of this plant, then Jonah smiles. He's glad. The prophet who was angry with a great anger, verse 1, over Nineveh's salvation, rejoiced with a great joy. That's the parallel of what's given to us. Angry with great anger, but now rejoicing with great joy. Why? Over the shade of a plant that saved him from discomfort. Grab your knife, because the irony here is very thick in what is being unfolded to us as we hear God's word. By sending this plant, God is just exposing Jonah's self-centered attitude towards grace. Apparently, grace is only amazing to Jonah when it's given to him. When it's given to a pagan nation, it doesn't much move him. 
Perhaps this is one of the great reasons why the grace of God is so flimsy, so cheap within much of Western evangelical Christianity. Could it not be that because of our cultural tendency to be infatuated with individualism, that it causes us to be so nearsighted that we are unable to rejoice in the grace of God given to others. What I mean is that essentially we become those who are unable to rejoice, giving glory to God for what he's doing in the lives of others because we are so infatuated with ourselves, with our own family, with our own circumstances, with our own lives. But what does God say actually brings him glory? What does God point us to when he wants us to see his glory manifested, to display his wisdom? What is it that God would say, look at that if you want to marvel at how I deal with people? It's interesting that Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, it's precisely this. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of heavenly places. He says, do you want to see my manifold wisdom, the mystery of grace? Then look to the church. Yes, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. There is something transformational and amazing about considering the grace of God in our individual lives. But... What is even more marvelous is to see the breadth of that grace to where it has been extended and where God is extending mercy to others. What I'm getting at is if your source of gladness is dependent solely upon the grace that comes to your individual life, you need a wider lens because you are missing out on seeing the glory of God and his manifold wisdom. If you wonder why your soul does not sing when songs of grace and mercy are put before you, if you wonder why you feel in some seasons cold and dead, how much consideration are you giving to the grace that God has extended, not just in your life, but in the people around you. Christian, let me exhort you, look up and look around. Look outside yourself and stand amazed at the redeeming grace of God that he has given himself to draw out a people out of every nation and tribe and people and language. When God wants to magnify his grace, he holds up his church. So that's our clue to not be so myopic and self-centered in our appreciation of grace and our inability to say, look what God has done. 
God's means to grow you in your amazement of his grace is to place you within his church. You get a front row seat to see how he is unfolding the mystery of salvation and saving others alongside you. As you hear testimony after testimony of grace upon grace, you have a greater opportunity to be brought into this orchestra of saying, salvation is of the Lord. Yes, amazing grace that saved me. But look at this and look at that. Have you heard her story? Did you hear how God is working in their family? God says, look to my church if you want to stand amazed at his great wisdom and his great mercy. We must learn from Jonah what makes us glad. God not only sent the shade of the plant, what else did he send? He sent a worm. What this means is that the shade was was short-lived. For just as the morning sun was coming up the next day, a hungry caterpillar comes, attacks the plant, and it withered. But the object lesson isn't over yet, because just as the sun was high in the sky, God also appoints a scorching east wind coming off the hot sand of the desert. And between the heat of this wind and the heat of the sun that's beating down on Jonah's head, he had enough, and he yet concludes again, it's better for me to die than to live, which is now the perfect setup for God to ask again from another angle. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? We're coming back to anger, Jonah. We're coming back to your anger. You're angry again. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? Now, what's underneath this question? This is what we would call a loaded question because there's a lot behind this, isn't there? What is God getting at? Well, he says, how did the plant come to be, Jonah? Was it a gift? Or something that you planted, something that you watered, something that you picked out from a seed and you brought it home and you put it there in the ground and you tended to it? Jonah, did you earn that shade by the sweat of your brow or was it graciously given to you? Jonah, you did not work for this plant nor tend to it, but you are grieved about losing it. You have no reason to complain. Furthermore, Jonah, how long did you know this plant? Had you enjoyed its shade every day of your life? No, literally, one day, here today, gone tomorrow. Do you have any right to be angry for this plant, Jonah? Yes, I do, he says. Angry enough to die. What God is getting at here is that Jonah did not deserve the plant. He did not earn the plant. Yet his anger is this giant billboard that says, My life is not fair. I'm angry enough to die. The second question really gets at the heart of the issue. And the issue is this. The sovereign will of God. And Jonah's anger over his lost shade exposes the heart of the matter. It really exposes the theme that runs through every chapter of the book. The question that we started asking this morning. Who is it that deserves mercy? No one. 
But the ever-present problem with Jonah and you and I is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that there are these massive categories of what we deserve and what we don't deserve. And when something on one of those lists gets misorganized or miscategorized, we become angry. The shade from the vine was pure grace, but his anger over it, over its loss, it reveals some measure of, I deserve this shade, and it's unfair for this shade to be taken from me. Friends, as long as we think that there is some measure of what we deserve in this life, we will eventually, to some degree, become angry and embittered. If there is some scenario, if there is some sort of loss, some set of circumstance that would cause you to raise your fist to God and say, how dare you, how unfair of you, I am angry enough to die, then what that exposes is that the evidence of the immensity of grace has not yet saturated your heart. Because what you believe, even if in part, in saying that, is that God owes. He's indebted. And I would challenge you to find any portion of scripture in the narrative of all that God has given to us to say that God owes his creatures anything. How else can we make sense of Luther's Lyrics, a mighty fortress. Maybe you've sung them and you've questioned, did I just sing that? Did I mean that? You know which line I'm talking about? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. How is it that anybody in their right mind with real sincerity can say with open-handedness, take everything? Even this mortal life, who can honestly sing that in good sincerity and, and true faith? Well, I would argue it is only the person who has tasted the grace of God because it is the grace of God that frees you to say, these were never mine to begin with. Even every earthly good, every dear family member, Every friend, even life itself, it's a gift from the hand of my gracious God. I deserve none of it. Let good and kindred go. This mortal life also. His kingdom is forever. It's only when we taste the grace of God that we're enabled to say such things. And so the reverse would be true then. It is most certainly a grace deficiency when we are unable to sing or to say those very words. And that would provoke us to say, that's unfair. And I'm angry about it. The final verse of chapter 4 drives this home. where the Lord looks to Jonah and says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, from a plant to a city. God is driving straight at the heart of the matter right here. It is the same question that was really posed to the vineyard workers in Jesus' parable uh, in Matthew chapter 20. Where at the end of that parable, if you remember, they were paid the same wage, though they started at different times of the day. And the vineyard worker, the master of the vineyard, says to them, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The question posed to Jonah right here is ultimately a question of God's sovereign right as creator. That's what this gets to. God has every right to exercise pity over the plant, over the people of Nineveh, over Jonah himself. Nothing falls outside of his domain and his prerogative to do with as he wishes. Jonah, if you so love the plant that you had nothing to do with, can't I... The sovereign God, love whomever I choose. What is that to you? What is it to you to whom the Lord shows mercy? Now, this is really the story arc that runs not only through Jonah, but through all of Scripture. And it finds its exclamation point in Romans chapter 9. And interestingly enough, where does Paul turn to? to draw us to the same conclusion. He takes us in Romans 9 to Exodus. Listen to Paul's reasoning. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. Do you do well to be angry? It's really a question that hangs in the air by design. Because maybe you turn the page even to look for chapter 5 to see how, how does this end? How does Jonah respond? Well, We don't know how Jonah responded because Jonah is not really the point of the story. Jonah is just a supporting actor, character in a much larger story. The main character here is God and his mercy. And Jonah, his part serves just to accentuate, just to magnify the wondrous mystery of God's grace. And so that means we, you and I, this morning are meant to be confronted by this same grace. Not so that we would shake our heads, bow and pray, I thank you, God, that I'm not like Jonah. Amen. (laughs) Missed the book entirely. God's questions to Jonah are meant to be leveled at you as well. How does the book of Jonah strike you? Are you pretty confident that you see the error in Jonah's ways? Do you have some sense of certainty that Jonah's problems are not your problems? I mean, you see where he's gone wrong. You see mercy. You see grace. You see your own heart. Are you feeling somewhat confident that good object lesson? I think I'm okay here. Because I doubt, in reality that we're really resenting anyone being saved. 
I doubt there's anyone here this morning that's really wrestling with the fact of should we support missionaries to go to Africa or to Asia or to Europe that people might repent and believe? I don't think that's the, the tone that's really the concern here among us today. More often, I think the questions that we wrestle with are, should I extend mercy to my spouse who's offended me? Should I be patient with my children that do not listen? Should I be slow to anger with incompetent coworkers? Should I be gracious towards immature church members? See, it's not that we're opposed to the mercy of God. We just bristle at how and where it's applied. Do you do well to be angry? When we read the book of Jonah, we should, beyond a shadow of a doubt, be astounded that God would mercifully send a messenger to a wicked city of Nineveh and warning them of, of judgment to come. That should not be lost on us. And we should stand even more amazed that God would send not just a prophet, but that God would send his son as a man, the God-man, in order to save not just a city, not just a country, but a kingdom of people that overflows into every people, tribe, tongue, and language. And he did not come in this call to call the righteous. He did not come to fill his kingdom with those who were already made ready. No, Christ came so that the astounding statement of Paul in Romans chapter 4 might be true. God justifies the ungodly. That is the announcement of all of Scripture. He did not come to call the righteous. How could this ever be? Because at the cross of Christ, the justice of God against guilty sinners is poured out upon Christ, poured out upon an innocent sacrifice so that guilty people get mercy. That is how. The cross of Christ is, is where justice and where mercy meet. It's where righteousness and peace they have kissed. And so we can confidently say then that in how God deals with every soul that will ever walk this earth, that they will either know the justice of God or the mercy of God. But no one can raise their fist at God and say, this is injustice. Justice or mercy. That is exactly what the scriptures proclaim. No one deserves mercy, but God delights to give it. And he extends it through the sacrifice of his own son. Justice was met. Nobody gets a free pass. His son suffers for his people. And his people then get mercy. And this is where we must marvel at the grace of God. Because when this grace comes to a life, it transforms it. It creates an entirely new person. 
the sort of people who, through the miracle of regeneration, are progressively conformed to the image of this Son by the work of God's own Spirit to bring them to this place, to those who have tasted mercy, now they delight in extending mercy. How do we know when we've moved beyond just the formalities of religion? Or how do you know when you've moved beyond just the imposter of spiritual, mystical, false religion? When the very character of God is imaged back in your life. It's easy to play formal religion. It's easy to be emotionally moved by some sort of pseudo-mysticism. But the only way a person begins to image back the character of God and extend mercy to those who are undeserving is when the Spirit of God indwells that person and they themselves love what God loves and reflect this God who is. The wonderful mystery of grace is that God transforms us to love what he loves. A gracious God creates gracious people who love mercy, who delight to extend it. People who are slow to anger, people who are overflowing with faithfulness, who have a reputation for sacrificial love. That is really the mark of Christ's people. That is the mark of his church, those who he's called to himself. The sort of people who ask questions. The sort of people who turn to others and ask, do you need mercy? Can I introduce you to the one who's had mercy on me and tell you what he does for people like us? That is why Christ has come. That is why God has given to us the book of Jonah, that we might see God extends mercy to undeserving people because of Christ and his work on the cross. Let's look to him now and ask that he would do this in our lives. Father, we confess that we are debtors to mercy alone. And we do thank you for your patience, for your long-suffering with us, because we know that we are the ones who are very often proud, that we have overinflated views of ourselves. Lord, how greatly we need the work of your Spirit to apply all that is ours in Christ, that our lives might be soaked down to the very bones in your grace. Help us, Lord, as those who have tasted mercy, to extend mercy to others, that we might care for one another, and bring the hope of Christ to a needy world, we ask in your Son's name. Amen.